Hello, thanks for listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane, and on this episode, I'm going to be speaking to BBC investigative journalist Jane McSorley about the new Audible original series, I Am Not Nicholas. There are moments I'm sure each of us can recall from the lockdown months of the pandemic where walking the dog say or or on your own, you you had a particular thought that struck you about how the world was changing and what was coming down the pike. Uh, I remember thinking how while the world appeared to be on pause, someone somewhere right there and then was surely becoming the face of a truly bizarre tale that we'd only hear about once life had resumed. And it only took me 10 minutes of listening to the new Audible original series, I Am Not Nicholas, released last month. That's right. For me to realise that that was that tale. I wanted to ask if you knew the, the American man that lived here. I was seeing this as months and months of work. Hello, my name is Jane McSorley. Do you have just a few minutes now? And it has become practically a year. You just don't know what's going to happen when somebody answers that door. Oh. Oh my God. Oh my God. He's not dead. No way. I knew he was still alive. I knew right away. It was very strange. It was very strange. He would lock me in the upstairs bathroom. All I had was the running water. He has never hurt me, never touched me. He doesn't abuse me. A case of mistaken identity? I mean, what on earth is going on? It really is an unfortunate situation. I cannot get my head around the magnitude of this. It is beginning to become a storm. And the woman who tells it, who pieced it all together from scratch, is sat opposite me here at La Trompette in Chiswick to talk about it. Jane McSorley. Jane, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very happy to be in La Trompette again after so many years. Tell us why. Why? Um, well, when we, when we moved to Edinburgh, it was from Chiswick and that was in 2008. And we were really happy in Chiswick, but there was an opportunity that came up for my husband work-wise. I was working in the BBC, which is just a cycle away in White City from, from Chiswick. And yeah, so we made the move in 2008 and I was very sad to leave London. But I'm, I mean, I'm, I love Edinburgh and I sort of always wanted at one stage to live in Edinburgh and it sort of happened by accident rather than design but um, La Trompette was just around the corner from where we lived on Dukes Avenue in Chiswick and we would come here not regularly it's a very special restaurant and it's really haute cuisine French restaurant and we came here the odd time during the time we lived around the corner in Chiswick and I loved it and you're originally from Ireland I'm from Belfast from Belfast You travelled all the way from Edinburgh to be here, as I understand Absolutely, it. to be with you, Jack Aldane. It's me. <laughs> Flattered. And to um, eat in my favourite restaurant. Yeah, what an absolutely. Offer. Well, I cannot wait for us to, to check out the menu and to order from here. I mean, it, it is a superb place, incredibly stylish. Well, let's start with this question. Who is 
Jane McSorley. Oh, <laughs> How did you get into the trade of doorstepping the public in a Trilby and Transcoat? What roughly were the stepping stones that led you to this monster of a story? A gift of a story and a monster, mm. indeed. Um, it was December 21 and um, I just finished, um, it was an undercover gig actually I had with BBC Northern Ireland. And so in January I had no work, I wasn't too sure when my next sort of project was coming up. I remember it was the 15th of January, it was a Saturday. And every morning without fail, this is what I do. So whether I'm having breakfast, whether I'm having a cup of tea, I look at the news online. So it's not really, I don't put the radio on, I don't put the telly on, I just sit down in front of my laptop and look at the news online. And it's the BBC I go to. So the national news, I look at BBC Northern Ireland news because that's where I'm from. And I always look at BBC Scotland news. And this story wasn't the lead story. It was a wee bit further down the BBC Scotland news web page. And the headline was this. American man who faked death found alive in Glasgow. And I was like, wow. So I looked at this article. It posed more questions than there were answers for. But anyway, the story gripped me. And it went into detail about how this man, who called himself Arthur Knight, was arrested in a COVID ward in the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. The authorities were saying that he was Nicholas Rossi, an American fugitive who was a convicted sex offender on the sex offenders registry. He had multiple aliases and he was on the run. He was wanted for a rape in Utah. But he was saying he was Arthur Knight from Ireland and he was not this man called Nicholas Rossi that the authorities said he was. So it was like, wow, it was a total gift of a story. So what did you do next? I just, I just was very excited about by it. I, I, I mean, when you read about these stories, potentially maybe they're in Europe or maybe in America, but this was unbelievable because it was on my doorstep. It was, it was down the road. I mean, I'm in Edinburgh, but he was in Glasgow. It's 50 miles down the road. So I thought, I'm working on this. I am working on this. And I did contact BBC Scotland that day. It was a Saturday. By the end of Monday, they hadn't come back. But I thought, I'm doing this anyway. Were you worried at all that somebody might have gotten in before Yes, you? I was, actually. Mm. I was. And when I emailed this, the, the person in BBC Scotland, I thought, well, maybe you're onto this already. But it had just come out in the news. So, But you just never know. So... Then I just found out when Nicholas Rossi stroke Arthur Knight was appearing in court, which was just a handful of days after this article on BBC News. Um, and I turned up at the court and then I found out where he lived. And I then started doing what I loved doing. I started door knocking and, you know, just getting to speak to the people who knew him, his neighbours, the, the landlord, the, the man that owned the pub around the corner. And I was on this story. You say that you knew you had to cover it. What was it about this particular story that you thought, this I have to cover? Um, well, it had to tick lots of boxes. It was fake death. It was multiple aliases. It was man on the run, fugitive in Glasgow, turning up alive in a COVID ward. I mean, what more else is there that, you, you know, it was on my doorstep. Yes. And I, and it was very fortuitous as well for me at the time because I wasn't working. If I'd been involved in a project, you know, I wouldn't have been able to immerse myself in this story the moment I read it. 
You mentioned a couple of times throughout the series that you love knocking on doors. You loved doorstepping, you know, standing, it seems, on the threshold of new, potentially groundbreaking information. Is that your favourite bit of the job, would you say? And if so, why? It's, it's one of my favourite bits of the job. I mean, it's tricky. You know, nobody likes a cold call. Even when, you know, when somebody rings my doorbell or whatever, you're thinking, you know, who is this? But I, I see it as a challenge, you know, so I was standing there, I had to say, you know, my name's Jane, I'm a journalist. And I thought, God, as soon as they hear journalist, they'll probably just want to close the door. Some people might. Um, I, you know, had a BBC ID that I showed them. So, I mean, it was like bona fide. Mm. And I just, you know, I, I knocked on everybody's door in the in the, in the building where, where Arthur Stroke Nicholas lived. And you ended I mean, up speaking to his landlord. I and that's did. where we start in the series, at least. Yeah. That's your first doorstep. And you eventually get in touch with and are able to meet Arthur Knight. I mean, the stars were aligned in terms of me grabbing the story, in terms of me being able to just go with it from the from the moment I read it. And also by turning up on Arthur Stroke Nicholas's doorstep, getting into his building, which has at least 10 or 12 flats. And then I hung around outside quite a lot sort of speaking to people up and down the street because there had been a lot of police activity a few days before whenever he was arrested because he hadn't turned up for a hearing and the police had, had turned up at this flat in Woodlands in Glasgow at night time and it took them a long long time to get him out of, out, of the, out of his home so there was a lot of police activity then and everybody on the street knew about it really but whenever I was just sort of waiting I saw a man and I didn't know if he lived there I didn't know anything about him but I turned around and I said I said, are you going into this building? And he said, yes. And I don't know why. I said, are you going in to see Arthur and Miranda? And he said, yes. And, and he turned around and I, and I asked him who he was. And he said he was their landlord. And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. You know, of all the moments, you know, for a landlord to turn up, it was when I was there, you know. So he said that he thought he understood Arthur Knight more than Arthur understood himself, which was quite intriguing just to mm. hear that. I didn't ask him why, which I regretted afterwards, but he was very reluctant to give me his telephone number. I mean, he really did not want to give it to me because he might have thought I would have been hounding him, which I didn't intend to do. But um, he did He did eventually succumb and um, passed on his number to me. And then I thanked him a couple of days later and I don't think he responded but he was my way in to Arthur Stroke Nicholas because I found out two or three weeks after that that he, Arthur Stroke Nicholas, was speaking to some members of the press, particularly in America. So I thought, this is it, I have to try and get speaking to him myself. So I contacted Mr. Sood, his landlord, and asked him to pass on a message to Arthur Stroke Nicholas. And, um, and he did because I got a call like three days later from Miranda his wife and that was some call because because they asked me around for dinner and it was during that meeting really that you kind of got sucked into their world but, yes and the doubts that were in your head i know for a fact were in mine will be in anybody's who who listens to this what can we say about that meeting about your first impressions yeah i was i was nervous i was excited too because i knew this was a great opportunity and this was me getting in with him and his wife Arthur and Miranda and um, given he had been, he was Irish supposedly, I had been in Belfast at the time whenever I got the call whenever Miranda called me with Arthur saying come round for dinner and I had turned around and I said listen, you know, I'm in Ireland you know, what can I bring over from you that particularly that you like 
And um, I felt that was another wee in that I could have with him. And he told me, he said, Barry's tea bags and um, Tato smoky bacon crisps. Now, you can get Tato crisps in the Sainsbury's supermarket where I live in Edinburgh because there's an Irish section. You can get Barry's tea bags, but I wasn't prepared to tell him that. So anyway, I went off and bought my Barry's tea bags, bought my crisps. And anyway, a few days later, I was back home in Edinburgh and I drove to Glasgow and I was very nervous because I didn't know what who I was going in to see. I was 98, 99% sure this was this dangerous convicted sex offender um, with a very violent past. But, but then I thought, you know, he's fighting this tooth and nail. He's saying he's not this man. And I thought, well, may, maybe, maybe they've got it wrong, but I don't think so. He was wheelchair bound with yes. an oxygen mask yes. at this time. So you weren't necessarily 98% sure that you were in danger, or is that what you are saying? Well, I mean, yes, he had been a very sick man. He was in and out of intensive care um, several times over three or four months when he was very ill with COVID-19. And whenever I saw him, he was in a wheelchair because as no possibly muscle wastage from all the time he was in hospital and he had oxygen 24-7. So he had this mask with the oxygen tank right beside him going in. So there was the constant hissing. Now, you know, I thought, well, he's obviously probably not capable of maybe running after me or subjecting me to anything because he's not a well man. Physically, he's not fit. But, you know, there's always a wee bit of doubt. You think maybe he's putting it on. You know, and then I thought, well, maybe the wife's not going to be there. Maybe she's going to pop out for milk. Or... Right. So, um, you know, I thought with the wife there, I'll be OK. But you just never know. Maybe she'll be in another. You just never know. But I thought, I explained to my bosses and they said, listen, we're going to have to take precautions. I had a security man. I had backup outside in the car waiting for me. We'd gone over a wee sort of comms plan of how I had to alert them. I had a wee panic button in a, in a necklace and um, yeah and I, I felt I felt sort of better and it was the right thing of the BBC to do I thought it was a wee bit overkill but it was the right thing of BBC studios to do so I went in and it was 7 p.m. they asked me for and they were very welcoming Arthur was dressed in a three-piece suit and a bow tie I mean he was like very well turned out and I thought why and in his wheelchair and and you know the dinner was cooking and um, they were so nice, warm, engaging, friendly, you know, chicken. What was it I had for dinner? It was champagne chicken. Mm. And they offered me a glass of champagne. And I was like, what? You know, that I found that a wee bit odd. Mm. And, and then Miranda said, she said, this is the champagne we had when we got married, which was in 2020. And I was like, why champagne? I mean, maybe wine. But it was, I felt very welcomed, really, by the two of them. And you left convinced that you were speaking that night to Arthur Knight. Oh my goodness. I mean, he described his upbringing to you in Ireland and painted a very quaint picture. Fruit markets on Moore Street and old ladies screaming and strangers talking on street corners. Not the kind of memories that you'd think a millennial child would have of a modern high street. Well, the Irish sort of backstory came at the next visit, which was full of holes. But this time we, we didn't go there. It was more about you know, how he was arrested, the shock. Right. It was more yes. about his ill health. It was a very normal chat. He was recording, which I found 
odd. There was an element of performance to the whole thing, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, there was. So he, the you know, costume and totally the champagne, the champagne made it all seem very glamorous. Yeah, the three-piece suit, the bow tie, the champagne, the champagne chicken, and you know him with his Zoom recorder and his mics and his mic stands and his headphones, and I was doing the same, but I was the journalist mm. and he was the interviewee. But I mean, it was like the tables were sort of turned, and I couldn't quite get that, but I had to accept that. And there was a point when um, I knew I had to ask him to pull up his sleeves, which was the way that he, one of the ways in which he was identified in the hospital in Glasgow, because he has very distinctive tattoos on both his arms. Right. So that was, and for me, whenever he turned on any whenever I turned around and asked him, I realized this was going to be a moment of, well, my God, it was a moment when I did ask him to pull up. I didn't actually think he'd do it because he had been interviewed on BBC Scotland not that long before whenever the reporter had asked him to pull back his sleeves. Again, he was in a three-piece suit, the bow tie and the wheelchair, and he refused. He said, I'm too tired. So then when it came to me sitting in front of him, sitting in the wheelchair, I was in an armchair, and we'd had dinner at this stage, and I said, will you pull back your sleeves? And he said yes. What's, I mean, there, yes, there are no tattoos. No, hang on a second. What's that, that little mark there? That is a burn yeah. from being in hospital. So you've, you've rolled up both your sleeves uh, up until just below your elbow. And it is as clear as day to me, sitting in front of you, that there are no tattoos on your, on your arms from just below your elbow to your wrist on both, both arms and that there's no evidence at all that there were tattoos there in terms of serious scarring that would appear whenever a tattoo is removed. What he'd also done, I mean, he'd thought about this. He had a massive TV screen that was on his wall. So he'd got up on that screen just before he pulled back his sleeves. The, the close-up shots of Nicholas Rossi's arms, tattooed arms. So you could see clearly the tattoos on the left arm, it was the whole way down from the shoulder to the wrist. And on the right arm, it was just to his elbow. So I looked at the images on the screen, and then he pulled his sleeves back to his elbows, his jacket and his shirt, no tattoos. And it was the left forearm that was the one in question, because the right, there wasn't any. It was just the upper arm. Right. But the left forearm, no tattoos, no scarring. And I just thought, oh, my God, you know, surely... Surely that, well, if that's how they identified him, that's, you know, but I mean, there's no tattoos and, and there was no scarring. There was nothing mm. that would hint at, you know, that he got them removed. Nothing like that. And that, that, I, that was an unbelievable moment for me because I thought, oh, my God, I actually think this is this Irishman, Arthur Knight, this random Irishman caught up in this terrible case of mistaken identity and that the authorities had got it wrong. Let's leave it there for now and have a look at the menu. Okay. Um, I will have... I will go with the Ibirico pork cheek, please. Okay, I'm going to have the pumpkin and sweet potato empanada and the roasted cod. Thank you. All right. What is the backstory to Nicholas Rossi? Yeah, so we, we looked into Nicholas Rossi and Nicholas Rossi, um, he was from Providence in Rhode Island. Um, born in 1987, and um, he had a very dysfunctional upbringing. His mum and dad split from a very early age. He was one of three. It was far from a stable, loving household that he was brought up in. 
and um, there were real issues and his mother remarried and um, the stepfather and him certainly didn't see eye to eye. They didn't get on. And in the end, it came to a point where they just couldn't cope. Either Nicholas couldn't cope with them or they couldn't cope with Nicholas. But he was then um, in foster homes um, around um, Rhode Island. And that's where he said he was abused. And um, then, you know, it, it, it seems from what we have found out that he was possibly an abuser as well. So I, I actually don't doubt that he was abused. I think he most likely was. Um, in the early years, he was a page in the State House in Providence in Rhode Island, which is like a, you know, a gopher, really. But he was this as a, as a teenager. They were very coveted positions. That's right. So Nicholas Rossi's experience had led him to campaign to reform foster care homes. And you can already see the, the performance artist in him coming out. You know, he was well known in, 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 the, in the political circles in, in, in Rhode Island. He was known. But I also think the man that he is that um, he was most likely the perpetrator of abuse as well. He was in and out of trouble with the law. You know, he was, I mean, he has a very checkered past and it all sort of went very pear-shaped for him in 2008 whenever he was convicted of a sexual assault of a, a woman that he'd met on MySpace. And they met, you know, with other people in the canteen at lunchtime. And then when he walked her to her class down in the basement, he... He seriously sexually assaulted her in the stairwell. He was convicted of that. He didn't serve any time, remarkably. and But he then actually went after the victim and he tried to sue her for, for defamation, which he lost. But, you know, he was just, you know, he said that it destroyed his reputation because he was on the sex offenders registry, which he is he's still on until the end of 23. And he went after her. So it wasn't bad enough to sexually assault her and seriously sexually assault her on the stairwell in the college in Ohio. But he then went after her for defamation once he was convicted, you know. So, I mean, it was just, I mean, you couldn't make it up, really. Then he was, you know, he was wanted for a rape. He's now got two charges of rape hanging over him in Utah. And, you know, there's a potential, you know, there's rape allegation from here in, in England, in Essex from 2017. I mean, he... You know, I met a number, we met a number of his victims, whether they were sexual assault victims, whether they were victim of his financial abuse, his emotional abuse, his physical abuse, his verbal abuse. I mean, I was subjected to horrendous verbal abuse by him. Which is when you came to blows. And it was because he wasn't willing to show one other sign that he was distinct from Nicholas. Well, it was, it was something that I'd noticed that I couldn't get over that nobody else had noticed, but it made sense to me as the, the weeks and the months went on why he had his mask on, his oxygen mask. Now, you know, whether or not he needed oxygen, it seemed like, you know, he didn't really, but, you know, the whole mask was part of his disguise. And, you know, I knew I had very very strong suspicions that he was I mean I knew I just needed the proof that he was this dangerous fugitive you know violent man convicted sex offender I knew he was Nicholas Rossi and but I needed proof and I, and and um so I was on a mission and it just happened whenever we were at this joke of a press conference in a hotel in Glasgow there was only myself my producer and the, t the journalist from the times that were at this press conference and um he had his mask on and it was very and it was quite steamed up and and I noticed I mean I couldn't take my eyes off it I noticed this very distinctive gap he had between his up two upper front teeth 
And I looked and I looked and I was fixated by it. And I thought, Jesus, what? I've not noticed it before because the mask hides it. So then whenever the press conference, the, the effort of a press conference was over, I then went online and I put in his Nicholas Rossi image, you know, in the image bit on Google. And there, there were a number of photographs which showed Nicholas Rothy with this very distinctive tooth gap. And I was like, yes, why has nobody else picked up on this? I mean, it was as clear as day, you know. And, and it just so happened that we hadn't finished our sort of what we were asking him then in the Glasgow Hotel. So again, this was very lucky, but he turned around and he said, you know, come round to, you know, our flat tonight and, you know, you can finish off the questions. So I was like, yes, this is it. So myself and my producer, Helen, turned up at his flat. And again, he was recording it all, the whole shebang. He had a big mixing desk. He had everything. He was like more prepared for it than me. But I had the killer question because I had spotted this very distinctive gap between his two front teeth. And I knew I had to put that question to him. Anyway, we went around to his flat. And it, this it was even more of a, you know, a performance for him recording it because he had a massive mixing desk. He had, you know, mic stands and mics and Zoom, you know, H6 recorder like I had. But, I mean, it was a mixing desk. And it was like, you know, I mean, it took over the living room, a very small living room. So I asked him some questions. They were a bit tricky about, you know, questions that had been legaled and, and you know they were difficult questions but he kept on saying address me as Arthur Knight and I'm not Nicholas Rossi or Nicholas Rossi as he kept on saying exactly Nicholas Rossi thought he would put everybody off the scent pronouncing his name wrongly <laughs> so I turned around and I just came to it and I said do you have a, a, a gap between your two front teeth now for as long as I live I will never forget this word and he turned around and he said a diastema I thought, he's trying to fool me, or he's trying to... And I turned and what I should have said, it was, you're so familiar with your tooth gap, you actually know the medical term for it. Anyway, so I asked him again, I said, do you have a gap between your two front teeth? And he said, a diastema? <laughs> again. And, and then it was basically him saying, this interview's over. I said, it's not over. He said, this interview's over, get out of my flat. I wasn't having it. I kept on saying, take your mask off, take your mask off. So I can see it. You're not getting the programme this way, Jane. Take your mask off. So you deny you don't have a space between your two upper front teeth. My diastema is not as large as You have a gap between your two upper front teeth, but yet you won't take your mask off to show show your lawyer and to show the producer. You've seen my face. Take your mask off. You've seen my face. Take your mask off. You've seen my face. Yes, I know. You've been a guest in my home multiple times. You promised us respect, dignity. You've sat here. You have lied to me, Arthur. You have lied to me. I have not lied to you. You have have lied to to me. A program. I'm trying to make money. How can you deny you're not this man? I am not that man. You You are are that man. To sell a podcast. This is just like you, and he's got a very distinctive gap between his upper. I am not that man. Take off your mask. I am not that man. I crossed the line. I crossed the line. I, you know, and I don't say that very proudly. So people listening to you say that you crossed the line who, who may want to understand perhaps why you felt you had. Well, I, 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 he, he was manipulating me 
he was, you know, he thought he was getting away with it, but I wasn't sort of having it. I, I knew he was Nicholas Rossi. I knew he had this very distinctive tooth cap. I wanted him to take his mask off. Earlier on in the hotel, he actually had taken his mask off to have a 10-minute phone call with a journalist in America. So I knew he could take his mask off. It wasn't an issue. It hadn't been, you know, a few hours earlier in the hotel in Glasgow. And, you know, it was just the fact that he just... I don't know, he just wanted the interview over. I wasn't backing down, you know, and it, you know, I have never, I have never been like that with a contributor, never. And, you know, I'm no spring chicken, you know, I'm 54, I've been doing this job now for 30 years and, you know, but I've never met a contributor like him, ever. Let's talk about the faked death and the way that Miranda comes into the story there in, in a particular way. No? Yes, so Nicholas Rossi died, in inverted commas, on the 29th of February, 2020. And um, how people found out about it was that there was an online obituary and he died abroad, his ashes were scattered at sea. Now, then there comes into play the grieving widow, Louise Aliverdian which was other, another surname for Rossi. So his grieving widow, Louise. And she starts calling local politicians because, you know, wanted, she wanted there to be proclamations in the state house, you know, because he was a known campaigner and, you know, people thought he was a, a good guy that, you know, wore his heart in his sleeve and wanted to, you know, call for big change and reforms in the child welfare system, which, which he had been part of, which he said was a horrendous abuse that he suffered there. So... She was on a mission. Now, the problem with Nicholas Rossi was, because he's a narcissist, he loves the attention. Now, if he'd just faked his death and gone away, do you know what I mean? But the fact of the matter was, he wanted everybody to talk about him being dead. He just loves the attention. He's an attention seeker. He's a complete narcissist. So even being dead, he wanted people to talk about him. And that was his downfall. I strongly believe that was one of his downfalls anyway. So he wanted big memorial services he wanted incredible eulogies that the priest that the grieving widow louise spoke to you know she talked about these you know orchestral pieces that she wanted played you know in this church in greenwich and in, in rhode island you know and she you know and the various obituaries that she wanted written i mean the boston globe i mean she, she the grieving widow louise was going for it but if he wanted to escape and evade justice he should have just died Quietly, do you know what I mean? And that's it. Yeah. Previously, he'd written a, an e-book with the title I can't remember what it was. What was it? Ignoble Inferno, which was an account of his life as a child of a broken home, abused. I mean, the Boston Globe journalist talks to you about the fact that this is a clear case of somebody who is addicted to fame, as he put it. So Louise, the grieving widow. The, the yeah. grieving widow had called priests, journalists, politicians in Rhode Island, and everybody thought it was Nicholas Rossi with a voice changing app. Now, any journalist worth their salt needed to get the audio, some audio of Louise, the grieving widow, ringing the priests, ringing the politicians, ringing the journalists. And we got it. And it was unbelievable. I was driving at the time whenever my producer <clears throat> was in the passenger seat and um, I was like, play it. This is absolutely groundbreaking. That voice of Louise, who was the wife of Nicholas Aliverdian, is Miranda. Oh my God. 
I mean, I really actually thought at one point she was, and then I thought she wasn't. And we've been asking all these people, and they thought it was a voice disguising machine. And, you know, it was Nick. It's Miranda. An absolutely brain-shattering, car window-shattering moment, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> the sound that you make. <laughs> it's clearly Miranda. It's, it's clearly, clearly Miranda. Yes, it is. And I mean, I nearly, I mean, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And I just, I sounded a wee bit unhinged, I think, when I, when I heard it for the first time. Because, because I'd actually even asked Miranda. So it was, you know, around the time of the, the tooth gap cup confrontation. That's right, yeah. I had the opportunity because Nicholas said, "Why? Do, why? If I'm such a wife beater, wife abuser, horrendous man, why is my wife with me?" And I was. He said, "Why?" I said, "Well, maybe I should ask her." So I did turn around and ask Miranda, and she said she loved him, and he wasn't a, an abuser, a woman. He wasn't this, and he wasn't that. And it just came to me then, and this was before we got the audio of Louise. And I turned and I said, "Your middle name is Louisa." I said, the grieving widow of Nicholas is called Louise. I said, you know, she said to have an English accent. I said, it just wouldn't happen to be you that was making those phone calls. Now, she must have realised, God knows when I look back, but she said, no, that's laughable. I don't think I'm alone here in saying that the real mystery figure of the series, the real enigma, is Miranda Knight, after all, isn't it? Nicholas's wife. Do you feel... Like you got to know her at all in the time that you spent covering this story? I don't think I know Miranda at all. And, you know, I was I was just hoping, you know, but I mean, it was... I was just hoping that maybe she would just want to speak and say, this is why I did it, this is what happened, this is, you know, why I felt I had to do it, or this is why... I mean, just, I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why. I wanted to speak to her, interview her. I wanted her to tell me the whole reason why she stood stood with him, why she helped him fake his death and why she is basically has been helping him evade justice. You know, be a man that he's not. Be a random Irish man. You know, Arthur Knight caught up in this terrible case of mistaken identity. I mean, I remember early on, the very first time I met her, Whenever he was arrested in the hospital, whenever she talks about the shock that she was hearing these allegations that were being put to him of rape, of Utah. But I mean, she knew that moment, she knew when he was arrested in the hospital that this was most likely the beginning of the end for them. And her cover, whether, you know, was potentially going to be blown. No, it's, it's beyond me. And that is a mystery that has still to be unpacked. And sadly, I won't be doing that because Miranda is just, you know, I see her in court now. I saw saw her a couple of weeks ago. She either blanks me or she gives me a death star, so. So where are we now in the story? Bring us up to date. So basically where we're at, so the, the podcast came out on the 9th of February, so a good month or so later. Um, on the 6th of March, there was to be um, Nicholas Rossi's full extradition hearing. There was a week set aside. We all turn up and um, all the journalists and we're all waiting for him to come in because he's in a wheelchair. He comes in the front because he's in a wheelchair and that's the only access through the front um, of the courthouse. He's usually there in good time, you know, coming from the prison in Edinburgh, from HMP Edinburgh to the, to the, to the Edinburgh Sheriff's Court. And it was coming up to the time, it was coming up to 10 o'clock, no sign of Nicholas Rossi. And lo and behold, he didn't turn up. He didn't turn up. 
And you know why? Nicholas Rossi refused to get in the prison vehicle. He refused to get in the prison van to take him from HMP Edinburgh to the Sheriff's Court in Edinburgh. And, you know, the Sheriff McFadgen, Sheriff Norman McFadgen, was clearly not happy at all. Nicholas Rossi's counsel was asking for more time. It's his eighth legal team. He's either fired his legal team, his previous legal teams, or else, you know, they've walked away because they found him profoundly difficult. So he's on his eighth legal team over a year and they've been trying to play catch up and they need to get prison reports from the prisons you know from how the prisons are in Utah they have to get medical reports and all of this take time from various experts so basically they weren't ready anyway but it didn't help at all that Rossi didn't show so Sheriff McFadgen turned around and said come what may on the 26th of June it's a Monday so that week of the 26th of June he said the full extradition hearing is going to happen whether Rossi has legal representation or not or whether he turns up or not so that those will be interesting times i mean it's it's you know it's yet more time that we're waiting here but so come the 26th of June let's see what's going to happen he's stringing everybody along still you know I Am Not Nicholas has already proven a hit by quite a significant metric, which is just the sheer competition that exists within the true crime genre at the moment. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. Why do you think stories like the one you tell are so incredibly popular now? They've always been popular, but but let's be clear, they have had a huge, huge boom in the last 10 years, not least because of the podcast medium emerging into the mainstream. Um, I, I think a, a reason for that is, I mean, that was always, I think the sort of true crime genre years ago was more sort of aimed at, you know, housewives or women in their 50s perhaps at home and, you know, watching those sort of true crime channels, you know, those American channels. But I think now we're in a whole new era of true crime and I think it's down to streamers. I think the streamers have nailed it in terms of very, very high production values and and and, unbe- and unbelievable stories like Stranger Than Fiction, you know, and and the podcast world has got in on that. You know, I think, you know, I think there's just because they're done so very well now, whether it be, you know, streaming with with with, you know, on Netflix with The Staircase tinder swindler i mean just recently now the murdoch murders you know i mean you know i mean i can't wait myself to start watching these true crimes because i'm grabbed by them and i just think we all love a good story there is not anybody on this planet that doesn't like a good story but when that good story is true it's just like yes you know it's the suspense it's the intrigue it's the shock it's do you know it's all of that it's the disbelief and it's real do these sorts of stories serve an important function in society beyond the entertainment factors that you mentioned the intrigue the suspense the morbid fascination i mean i know it has been said that especially for women the true crime genre helps spread information about male abuse about violence personality disorders that true crime actually can be quite instructive in that sense i think the whole true crime genre, particularly with podcast serials, I think are a vehicle for everybody, not just women, to understand what makes somebody do such 
evil and devious things. I mean, you know, we're subjected to perpetrators of serious crime all the time, you know, particularly in the news. So you get, you know, a news report of maybe three and a half minutes of, you know, somebody who, you know, murdered a family or somebody that, you know, went into, you know, a mosque. And then the news report's over and then you go on to another news report and it might be politics, it might be some. But that's it. So you've only given sort of like three or maybe two and a half minute, three minute report on telly and that's it. And, you know, trying to sort of get your head round what it is that made that person do that. I mean, you just can't. But I think a true crime podcast, a bit like, you know, what we have in nine episodes, you, you get the opportunity to potentially understand why they might have done something like this. You 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 sort of make a decision in your own mind, you sort of hear all the evidence, all the information, you listen to the victims, you you hear from the person themselves. You know, and, you know, you hear the backstory and you, everything around it. It's like a whole 360-degree storytelling of what's happened. And you, you, you are on a journey with me. You know, from the moment I come across that story, you're like holding my hand. You're with me, you know, all this, every step of the way. And I think there's nothing better whenever, you know, that happens. When were you, would you say, most scared? during the investigation of the Nicholas Rossi story? There were, there were a couple of times um, as the sort of unravelling of him and his story went on over the months I was working on it, I actually asked him because I'd heard in court that he had an Irish driving licence. Mm-hmm. So when I was round at his flat the second time, um, I asked to see his driving licence and lo and behold, he couldn't find it. But, you know, it was said in court that he had an Irish driving licence. And I thought, I want to see this driving licence. I want to see the names on it. I want to see the address he uses. So then I had sent him a wee text. In the first two or three months of me working on the story, I asked him to take a picture of it and to send it to me in a text. And he rang me and I picked up the phone. And I regretted from the moment I picked up the phone because he completely lost it with me for asking him about his Irish driving licence. And he basically said, and I wished I had recorded it, but you can't record calls without their consent. And I didn't ask him because I thought that would put him over the edge even further. But I remember him saying to me in a very menacing manner, he said that he had surprises in store for me. And I thought, good God, what on earth does that mean? And I knew how he had been with other people that he, that he thought had wronged him. And I don't know if he thought I had wronged him. But also whenever I did have that confrontation, for want of a better word, with him about his tooth gap um, he sent me a series of very threatening texts straight afterwards and I must have got seven back to back and in the end I had to block his number I had to you know, block his number and his wife's number Miranda because I just thought I cannot deal with these texts, these threatening texts I, I don't want to deal with an abusive phone call I just, you know, this is not what my job plan is, do you know I mean it comes a point where I thought I just have to draw a line here. Has investigating this story left you with any feelings whatsoever of uh, regret? Any unfinished business? Yes. Things that were left undone, unsaid, unasked? Yes. Um, the unfinished business for me is that I never got to unravel the mystery of Miranda. But to be honest, you know, if I hadn't had that scoop, that big reveal, um, you know, then the podcast wouldn't have been as exciting and successful as it's been. So... Get onto Audible, download it, listen to it now. Jane McSorley, thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.